This paid commercial may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Women of Washington In-Depth, Cybersecurity in Government, sponsored by Booz Allen Hamilton. Here's today's moderator, Gigi Shum. Welcome and thanks for joining us today. My guests are Marty Eckert, Chief Information Security Officer for the Social Security Administration. Betsy Kulik, Deputy Program Manager for the CDM Program at the Department of Homeland Security. And Marcy Nagel, Principal at Booz Allen Hamilton. Welcome, ladies. Marty, I'm gonna start with you with a very general question. What are the top cyber threats that Social Security is facing today, and how do you expect those cyber threats to change or evolve over the next couple of years? Thank you, Gigi. Uh, so as the Social Security Administration, as you know, we have lots of personally identifiable information for millions of Americans. So, and we take that responsibility to protect that very seriously, but obviously the biggest threat for us, um, especially given what you hear in the news today about breaches, is um, the threat of a compromise of that personally identifiable, that sensitive information. Um, uh, to combat that, we have a comprehensive, integrated, holistic, robust cybersecurity program. Um, another threat to us, though, is um, older software that we use in our program. Our program has been around for a long time. I think it's uh, 80 years now. And so over the years, while we were early adopters of technology, originally you may have heard stories of how we made use of the first computers. Over years, some of that software has um, gotten old. Um, and so there is vulnerability in that legacy IT, if you will, um, current technology, cyber technologies, ter cyber tools are not built to protect those legacy platforms. So another challenge for us is uh, building out our program to protect those legacy systems, but as well as migrating those legacy systems to more modern platforms. How those threats will change, um, the bad actors in terms of nation state, criminal actors, hacktivists, those types of threats will continue. However, the techniques that they use will continue to change. They'll continue to modify their techniques. So as we build defenses and layers of defense into our program, they're constantly building something new and innovative for us to respond and react to. So our programs will also evolve to meet those new threats. Um, but we'll, we see that continued evolution and maturation of that threat environment. So one of the programs that was put in place to help agencies like Social Security is the CDM program, the Continuous Diagnostics and Monitoring Program, mitigation. which then became Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, Betsy, you've been involved in that program from the start. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to us a little bit about how it's changed over the years? I know that in the early years, there were a lot of challenges, as there are with any new program, but sure. both technical challenges and challenges surrounding acquisition. Can you tell us a little bit about the program, but even more than that, how you've now made some adjustments over the years from the things that you've learned as we are now moving into phase three of that program? Sure. Well, first of all, the CDM program was trying to galvanize and help agencies do and meet their obligations that had dated back from FISMA 2002. So we were trying to leverage what was already done, but agencies were struggling with funding and resources in order to get some of those basic fundamental cyber hygiene capabilities on the ground. So the program did some pretty innovative things. We combined agency requirements and we combined agencies in order to get a certain standardized approach toward ISCM, Information Security Continuous Monitoring, um, to help people talk on the same language and to understand the same picture, try to create that as an enterprise approach across even complicated federated agencies. Um, that proved to be very challenging because as we know, agencies are very complex. They have different missions. Um, and that, those were some of the things that were holding them back from, from being able to conduct that cyber hygiene. So we combined the agencies. We've had varying degrees of success. Um, on the positive side, we've gotten tools 
for the cyber hygiene part of CDM out to all the CFO Act agencies. Um, they're almost all of them on the point where they're completing full deployment. They're going to have dashboards that will show them the picture of what's going on in their agencies. But that's not to say that they had challenges in terms of trying to make CDM real for them for within their own agencies. Marty's agency is a really good one because they were really advanced for the reasons that she just explained. So they really knew what they needed and they were with a, a group of agencies that are different levels of maturity. So we had to accommodate that in our next set of, of task orders. And the, the other problem we had is we had three year periods of performance, which is really, I know that the push is for CDM and for agencies to do this fast, but three years is fast time in contracting mm -hmm. terminology. Um, so our next set of task orders is going to be for a longer period of time. We are not going to march into agencies, work with them, and deploy across the board like we did with the foundations, the cyber hygiene, hardware asset management, software asset management, configuration, vulnerability. We're going to be targeting, working closely with the agencies, looking at the full capabilities of phase three, which is what's happening on the network, and finding out what they need. Marty's agency may need more encryption support, for example, so that's working with them, that's what they would get. Um, they may not need, I'm just making this up, cloud stuff, for example, or that may be a less, less of a priority. So we will be targeting what agencies need instead of trying to apply the same thing across the board. And I think those are going to be two really big changes. Yeah, absolutely. So Marcy, I know that in your role at Booz Allen, you've been involved with CDM for a few years now too, and you've had the opportunity to see uh, several different agencies. What sort of um, innovation have you seen some agencies take with um, regard to CDM? Well, first, I would like to say that I have seen tremendous progress with the phase one deployments across the board in that in less than uh, the last two years, we've seen um, a tremendous decrease in just shadow IT. And through the deployment of hardware asset management and software asset management, we have together in partnership with DHS and the agencies have brought visibility into 82% more technology assets, at least within the, the agents, the 13 agencies that Booz Allen um, is supporting, which is, which is quite tremendous. Now, when you talk about shadow IT, it's yes. really, you can't protect what you don't know That's about, right? And right. so when you talk about shadow IT, what you're talking about is agencies that had systems on their networks that they didn't even know existed, right? That's absolutely right. So and how does that happen? Mm -hmm. So how does the shadow IT happen? Yeah. It's um, without that common set of um, capabilities that the CDM program is bringing to the agencies, which is first that network hygiene, the visibility into all of your assets. And when we came in and kicked off the CDM program with each, within each of the agencies, they had an idea in their mind how many assets they had, and they reported that at the start of the program. Well, after we've conducted those as-is assessments and deployed the hardware asset management, software asset management capabilities, we were able to uncover significantly more assets that uh, were previously just unreported. But now, bringing them into the visibility, we can now put all of the other capabilities or build the uh, additional CDM capabilities on top of those assets, whereas had we missed that step or went around it, you would have deployed capabilities perhaps on just a sliver of the entire enterprise, which um, certainly doesn't add the value that we we're looking to achieve. Can I add something? Sure, absolutely. I, I, you, you asked about shadow IT, and I think how that happens is because people are mission-driven. Somebody says we need to get something done, they get it done, and they follow up later. What's happened with the 21st century and cyber is you have to keep those two combined. Yeah. You cannot have mission without cybersecurity. And it's hard for us to, we understand that, but to operationalize that, yeah is really a challenge, and I'm sure Marty has long stories about that. <laughs> Marty, do you have some stories for us? Have, uh, do you, did you have experience when you implemented CDM that you found some uh, systems or parts of networks that you didn't know you had? So I wouldn't say necessarily that we found a network or a system that we didn't know we have, uh, but what we have done over the past several years is work closely with our operations components who, as Betsy described, with the democratization of IT and how much easier it is now to build a software application, mm -hmm. um, we have actually embraced 
are operational components who want to do that mission work and who want so to do, build that software, and they can now. So we have worked hard with them to envelop them and bring them into our enterprise security program, and we've worked with them to establish um, a common risk framework for them in building those applications. And we also work to assess and authorize those applications. So we've really tried to bring them into our enterprise security program to still embrace and address that need, though, that folks closest to the customer can sometimes build a software solution that works best for them. So, you know, uh, the security teams often get the reputation of being the people that say no all the time. <laughs> Sounds like you've done some work to try to shift that from being the team that says no to being the team that says maybe yes, but this is how you need to do it. How, how did that shift occur, and was there a cultural aspect to it that you had to work through? There is a cultural aspect to it. Um, and what we say, what we, we think our mission is to enable the business, right? So there is, when we talk about that, especially when we talk about, we have a lot of public-facing applications as well for our, our clients. And it's always this balance between convenience and security. But if you think about it, these are two closely held values by our customers, our clients, our beneficiaries at Social Security. Um, they want convenience, they want it to be easy to use, but they also want us to protect their information. And so they hold both of those values closely and it's, it's up to us to find that, to be able to um, apply both of those values and bake security into any of our applications. So, Marcy, I'm going to come back to you. You have a lot of experience with CDM with the civilian agencies. Sometimes there's the thought that the civilian agencies are not as far along as DOD or they haven't taken cybersecurity as seriously for as long. What's your perspective on that? Where, where do you think the civilian agencies are in their maturity level? Well, I would say um, right now we're, we're supporting 13 of those civilian agencies, and there really is a strong desire to get security right um, and lay the groundwork. And I would say that is consistently true for each of the agents, the civilian agencies we're supporting. Um, and they are diving in. They just need the assistance to get there. And what I think is great about the, the CDM program is that they are providing, through DHS, providing that roadmap, if you will, um, a logical sequence of capability rollout so that each of the civilian agencies can achieve that same level of maturity, which quite frankly is a no-fail mission. We have to get there. And then once we're able to build that common capability across, then we can work towards that automation of cyber operations to help with some of the uh, workforce limitations that we have, um, the automation of instant response, um, minimizing the time to detect, respond, mitigate, and then eventually we'll get to a position where we can achieve that ongoing assessment and authorization where there's no more three ring binders, if you will, CNA processes. And I honestly feel with the, the CISOs that I have the opportunity to work with and the CIOs that I, I speak with, they are committed to that mission and they are grateful for the opportunity to work with DHS and what DHS is bringing to the table um, and providing them the cybersecurity tools as well as the services to design, plan, and integrate that within their environments. Can I just hop on that Absolutely. One? In fact, I was going to ask if you had a perspective well, on that as I, well. I really want to go back to the gap between the operational people and the security people. And again, a shining example of where it works and why they are so far ahead, it's hard for the program to make that happen. The dashboard, I think, is going to be an instigator because it's going to have information that the operators are going to want and it's going up in the CISO offices for the most part. So we're forcing communications that have not happened before and as a program we can't mandate that kind of change. So we really look to thought leaders like SSA to help help bring the rest of the, the people in the, or the rest of the boats up to the right level because that's what we're trying to do is to get everybody to understand the, the really good lessons that they could get from SSA, for example, about how to, how to help people talk, how to get the CIO to be able to talk to the CFO and the CXO and all the rest of them. Again, this is what FITARA is trying to do, FISBA 2002. I think you see it in the, in the executive order, 13800. Um, probably the IT modernization report, the messages we're getting from the White House are all hold people accountable and, and make things happen. You can't just have window dressing. You have to actually work together to get it to happen. But that's hard for the program to do. I'll add 
one thing to that as what we've seen as as we're demonstrating the full integrated capability within some of the agencies and we're bringing that visibility into the number of vulnerabilities for example I've seen really near uh, in real quick action the the leaders take a response and start to direct their resources to quickly go in and aim to mitigate those vulnerabilities or take in these new assets that they previously weren't um, identified as a result of this new visibility and I've seen it um, time and time again. So it sounds like you're saying Marcy that really the first step in getting the, the two groups together and mm -hmm. to kind of do that mind meld that, yeah. that Betsy was talking about is just to give them the visibility that they need to there may be things going on in their environment that they had no idea were going on and once they're made aware of it they realize that that action is necessary. That's absolutely correct. My guests today are Marty Eckert, Chief Information Security Officer for the Social Security Administration, Betsy Kulik, Deputy Program Manager for the CDM Program at the Department of Homeland Security, and Marcy Nagel, Principal at Booz Allen Hamilton. I'm your moderator, Gigi Shum, on the panel discussion of Women of Washington, Cybersecurity and the Government, sponsored by Booz Allen Hamilton on Federal News Radio 1500, and federalnewsradio.com. Federal agencies need to detect and respond to threats like never before. Yet as cyber attacks increase, being prepared means being more proactive. It's not about having more tools. Booz Allen uses the tools you have to be more effective, and we look at innovative ways to drive efficiencies. Booz Allen can help you employ approaches like advanced threat hunting to go on the offensive against malicious activities across the enterprise. Get ahead of the threat and get ahead with your mission. Learn more at boozallen.com cdm. Welcome back to the panel discussion, Women of Washington, Cybersecurity and Government, sponsored by Booz Allen Hamilton on Federal News Radio 1500 and federalnewsradio.com. My guests today are Marty Eckert, Chief Information Security Officer for the Social Security Administration, Betsy Kulik, Deputy Program Manager for the CDM Program at the Department of Homeland Security, and Marcy Nagel, a principal at Booz Allen Hamilton. I'm your moderator, Gigi Shum. So ladies, let's just switch it up a little bit in this, in this segment, and I would uh, love to understand how each of you got interested in cybersecurity. You know, we read all the time the statistics about women in STEM fields, women in technical fields, women in IT, and the numbers are not good and they're not heading in the right direction. But even within IT, I feel like there are certain segments that are even more male-dominated than others. And cybersecurity has to be one of the last bastions of, of male domination, in, I think, in IT. So yet, here are you three brilliant women. So Betsy, I'll start with you. How did, you, how did a nice lady like you end up in cybersecurity? <laughs> with a, gov a government background and a master's in international affairs. Um, I've always been interested in technology and policy. I grew up in the 60s and 70s, Sputnik. Um, I got interested in satellite communications and how to make satellite communications work for people. And that was a very male-dominated field at, at then. I worked in that for 20 years. Then I moved over into government contracting, was put in uh, responsible for deliverables for a government contract that had to do with a, a very fancy cyber network 20 years ago. And right at that time, I guess it was less than that, NIST came out with their, S their special publications on security policy, and I just ate those up. I loved them, and we were documenting this network, and they needed a, somebody who could help do the security stuff. I said, that sounds like fun, so I fell into it. Um, I ha don't have any STEM background. I now tell everybody I meet, all the girls, that they need to get a STEM background, but I think part of the problem is, is the STEM, the way STEM is being developed is so male-oriented that girls get turned off by it. It's, it's not set up to accommodate some of the strengths that women have. Maybe that's changing. Yeah. Well, I, I think women are really big into collaboration, for example. We don't do a zero-sum game. We don't feel like we need to compete against anybody else. We like to work together. And I was just reading about a program, um, and I'm not going to remember the name of the school, but one of the reasons this young lady who has a STEM background went to it is because it fostered teamwork and working together as opposed to some of the other high cyber colleges that, that really focus more on one-on-one -on -one kind of independence. So um, I think this, this, the STEM world has to accommodate the strengths of everybody and women come to it with a different 
strength. I think, I don't want to talk in stereotypes, but I do know that women sometimes see things less as a zero one, more as a gray or a one plus, and I think STEM needs to accommodate some of those other kinds of perspectives in order to continue to attract and maintain the other 50% of the population in, in interesting science-related activities. Well, and I feel like with a field like cybersecurity, it's very broad and there's a, a lot of different kinds of jobs and different roles that you can have. And I think too often we narrow things down by just thinking about the very, very technical jobs and maybe we don't realize the policy that needs to, to go into it. Some of the um, organizational uh, well, thing, you know, and, uh, disciplines that if, are really valuable. If you look at, for example, cyber forensics, you cannot have a one-zero mentality to try to figure out where this person is hacking from. The more you can understand the cultural milieu that he, he or she came from, um, you can pick up certain characteristics that a one-zero background is not going to get you there. So I, for forensics in particular is an area that the more you can pull from different pieces of your experience, the more effective of a person you could be. And that's just one small part of cyber. There's lots more than that. Absolutely. So Marty, how about you? How did you get interested in cyber? So the short answer is um, I just had someone tell me this will be your new job. And it was, it was that, that works too, right? Um, but I will elaborate a little bit um, because, like Betsy, I didn't start out in IT, but I was actually brought into our systems organization as one of those friendly users to help redesign systems, and I just fell in love with it. Went back and got my master's, uh, my MBA with a concentration in information systems, and became an IT person. And initially in the software development side. But then I migrated over to another, as you say, male-dominated field, which is um, data center operations, mm -hmm. and ran the data center day-to-day operations. And um, from there, then I was asked to take on the CISO role, the cybersecurity role. And okay, Marcy, so do you have a different perspective on this? Well, I will tell you that um, I have spent my entire career, which is nearly 20 years, um, devoted to the protection of our nation's technology and information uh, assets through cybersecurity. And by the good graces of the United States Air Force, they told me that was going to be my career. <laughs> and uh, my first duty assignment was at the Pentagon. And um, at the Pentagon, I was a CNA analyst. I was working with mission critical systems um, to ensure the protection and that the validation of those security controls and that they were in place. And similar to you, Betsy, I ate that up. Yeah. I loved the policy about it. I loved the, the impact that I felt that I was having on our nation. And then with the events that happened at the Pentagon in early 2000, it reinforced that commitment to that mission. And so for you know, 15 years in um, uniform and federal service, I have spent time with uh, protecting. I went over to the FBI and had an opportunity to also help protect some of their critical investigative applications, which was very, uh, I felt, important and, and meaningful. And um, a point that Betsy made, you know, I was never, I was never an engineer per se, but I did feel like a collaborator and I did feel like I was a mission enabler. And I think that alone, uh, coupled with other things, um, probably helped drive my success in this field in that you know people start to come to you um, with questions about cybersecurity when you take that mentality and not the no mentality that you were describing earlier, but being uh, turning security into a mission enabler and you know 15 years in, in federal and uniform services and now uh, in the position that I'm at in Booz Allen um, supporting CDM and making the impact, it's, it's really quite meaningful and every opportunity that I get to share my path with other, you know, young uh, up-and-coming, you know, women in cybersecurity or people that are thinking about um, taking a, a path or a segue into cybersecurity, I share my, specifically the passion and the impact that it has because I think uh, people that believe in this mission that I know each of us do, I think that comes across and if we can somehow show, you know, 
the, the skill sets that we bring to the table, even if it isn't an engineering mm -hmm. background, it can be really, really meaningful. And um, the, the impact that I've seen over the past 20 years has, uh, is, really, uh, is really great for me. And I, I look forward to sharing that with others, every opportunity that I get. One of the things that, that I hear commonly is that one of the ways that we can encourage more young women into STEM fields, and maybe cybersecurity is a prime example of that, is connecting it with the real mission. In other words, don't, don't treat it like some video game, but instead um, have, have young girls understand at, at the middle school level or the elementary school level really what the mission surrounding these things. Um, Betsy, I mean, do you think that's... Oh, I think the, the mission is, is every, I mean, that's what drives all of us, clearly, is the mission, is, and it's so exciting to be able to contribute to making, to making things better. I mean, that's one of the advantages of being in, down on the ground level of the program is to, to see that. Um, I, I think the other thing that's important about mission is not just us at the work levels, but if you look around at, at the federal civilian agencies and you look at um, the number of CIOs and CISOs, maybe CISOs more so, um, women are starting to get into those positions. In DHS in particular, we've had strong female leadership above me for the entire time that I've been in the federal government, and that helps reinforce that sense of how important it is from a mission perspective. So I think there's definitely room for women in the cyber, cyber field. Absolutely, and you know, I, I always like to say the government really uh, gets kind of a hard time a lot of times out in you know the general uh, population America but one of the things that the statistics show that they do a, a much better job than mm -hmm. private industry is um, supporting women and minorities having both gender and ethnic and racial diversity in uh, in higher positions so yes, definitely. that's certainly true for for my world well, and truth be told, we have to. I mean, cybersecurity, the, the talent, we've got to tap into all of the resources out there because it is such a field in such high demand, and we would be remiss not to tap into such a tremendous talent pool that is the, the female workforce and what they bring to the table. Yeah, I think you're right, Marcy. I mean, um, I'll ask you, Marty, but it's really an arms race. And if we're going to battle with only half of our population, that puts us at a real disadvantage, don't you think? I do, but I also am hopeful that the demographics will change and pretty consistently. Remember, cyber is a fairly new field. Mm -hmm. And while IT has been around for a while as a college major, cybersecurity is really a recent new major. And even folks in their 30s, those majors didn't exist when they were choosing what are they going to focus on, right? Um, and you hear programs now all the time. Um, this college, that college, everyone has a cybersecurity program. And so I think that I'm encouraged by that. I think more women will get into the field as a result of having those educational opportunities mm -hmm. because it is an, uh, a mission and um, an inviting, in some ways, major, right? Because you can make a difference with this major. So I've, I'm hopeful that things are going to change. So you, you um, brought up something that I just have to ask about because it's been on my mind ever since I have been reading about it. We've all heard about the recent big breach at Equifax. And one of the changes that I have noticed is that for the first time, very publicly, people were criticizing the CISO and her educational background. She was a music major for both her undergraduate and her graduate degrees. And despite the fact that she had had a lot of IT jobs and security jobs, uh, there, she, she was really being trolled on the internet and was really coming under, I think, in my opinion, unfair scrutiny. So I'm gonna ask the question of, of you ladies broadly, like number one, have we reached a point where CISOs and CIOs need to worry about not only how and what they're doing to protect the data, but also who they're protect, you know, who they're hiring to protect it. And and secondly, do you think that that it's fair to kind of take apart somebody's background and because they have a liberal arts degree, uh, conclude that maybe they're not they're not suited for the job? Betsy, you look like you might have an opinion on this. <laughs> I have opinions on everything. Um, obviously, I'm not going to negate a music background having an, a political science background of my own. I don't see what relevance that has to it. As Marty pointed out, cyber hasn't been around that long. I think CIOs and CISOs are in many times poorly prepared for the jobs for which they are thrust into. 
um, they frequently get it because they may be the last man standing. I don't know how much support and training any of them get. Right now is a time of particular turnover when every time an administration changes, the, the top agency heads and it ripples down, they change too. Um, they're faced with a really huge challenge trying to maintain security over aspects of which they have no control, going back to that operational um, discussion we had earlier. They're in one side, the operations are in another. They don't get adequate support and training. Um, they don't get the support from their higher ups. I think it's a tough job to be a CISO right now. So no, I don't think it's fair to be looking at her background. I don't know what relevance that has with anything. Well, I do think a couple of things. One, um, the CISO, regardless of gender, is accountable for that program. Part of recent legislation or a recent executive order, et cetera, does hold not just the CISO and the CIO, but the agency head accountable as well for those cybersecurity. So there is, even with the, um, I think she was the CSO at Equifax, there is an accountability. And we and, want accountability, right? right? I mean, that's a good, I think we would all think that right. that's a good thing. So regardless of the background, there is accountability and that sometimes brings with it the um, consequences of something happened that's within your jurisdiction. Uh, we do also take seriously the qualifications um, in cyber. You know, one of the challenges and one of even the vulnerabilities is the workforce and whether we have the right skills across the entire workforce. Um, and some of that is because it's a recent new discipline. Um, some of that is just the demand. The demand, the threat level escalated rapidly. Um, it's not as easy for us to rapidly escalate workforce as it was for, as, as quickly as the threat level escalated. So, but we do take that seriously and we are looking for the right qualifications, whatever that position is in a cybersecurity program, um, including the CISA. So that's a great point, Marty. What, what are some of the things that Social Security are, are, is doing to keep up with that demand? Because you're right, it's uh, there are more requirements and more jobs than there are trained and skilled cybersecurity professionals to fill. So how are you dealing with that? So one of the things I think probably all agencies uh, may be doing to different varying degrees is we are starting our own training programs as well, right? And trying to keep those cybersecurity skills up to date. Gigi, I think as you mentioned, there are many different disciplines in cybersecurity, right? There's risk assessment, there's the forensics and the threat analysis, there's even training, awareness training discipline, right? And so we're trying to build out curriculums, internal curriculums in each of those disciplines so that we can keep our employees' skills up to date. Um, and then we identify folks that, that have the right talent, both internally, externally. Um, and we are lucky, we, are, we do have some assistance in getting cybersecurity hiring mm -hmm. right now across the, the federal government. So with uh, inter looking internally and then looking for the right qualifications externally. And Marcy, I'll ask you the same question. You, you uh, Booz Allen is a, is a government contractor, so you kind of see both sides of that. You see from the government and also from the contractor point of view. How do you guys keep up with the demand? My goodness. Well, I'll tell you, three years ago, um, likely across the government space, you didn't have Scout deployed in 80% of the uh, government, but now you do for hardware asset management. And quite frankly, you know, five years ago, there weren't Scout engineers, which is a tool for um, assessing assets across the environment. And as we're maintaining this widespread Scout deployment, quite frankly, uh, we have to grow the talent. And But what we found is identifying those with the aptitude, the background, network engineers, for example, and then we build upskilling programs to create the talent. Uh, same is true for Splunk. I know SSA's had Splunk um, in their environment for a long time, but a lot of the other agencies don't. And now that it is a primary integration tool across the federal landscape, what we've had to do is look for individuals with development backgrounds or computer science degree. And again, we've built a, a very formal training program that turns somebody with a, a computer science degree into a Splunk engineer. So I think we need to get really creative about growing the talent and looking for the aptitude and the abilities and then redirecting it to where the demand is. And we found that to be tremendously successful over the last two years as we're hiring, you know, a CDM workforce, if you will. 
And that's probably a competitive advantage for you to offer people the ability to continue to grow and change their skill set oh with goodness. whatever it's is the leading technology. It's a huge retention advantage yeah, in that people in, in technology or in cyber, they want to be challenged. They want to learn. As the technology changes, they want to change their skills and grow their skills right along with it. And so we found it to be a huge draw for our workforce and keeping them excited about what they do every single day. Yeah, I just wanted to add one thing about the training um, aspect. That was a, a problem that the, the CDM program has encountered from the beginning. Um, the federal CIO did CyberStat on the program last summer, and Canvas, Canvas agencies and all of them said we need more training. That was one of the things we tried to fix in our next set of task orders, um, to fund training more uh, more robustly in different ways of providing it. It's a fluid workforce, so you can't just hand somebody a PowerPoint or train them for two days and expect that, that you can't do one and done. You've, it's got to be a sustained kind of activity. Um, and we raise training as an issue with our OMB people as well for our federal oversight programs because it is a desperate need on the part of agencies to have trained people. And getting them the training and then retaining the training is going to continue to be a big challenge. My guests today are Marty Eckert, Chief Information Security Officer for the Social Security Administration, Betsy Kulik, Department Program Manager for the CDM Program at the Department of Homeland Security, and Marcy Nagel, Principal at Booz Allen Hamilton. I'm your moderator, Gigi Shum, on the panel discussion, Women of Washington, Cybersecurity and Government, sponsored by Booz Allen Hamilton on Federal News Radio 1500 and federalnewsradio.com. Federal agencies need to detect and respond to threats like never before. Yet, as cyber attacks increase, being prepared means being more proactive. It's not about having more tools. Booz Allen uses the tools you have to be more effective, and we look at innovative ways to drive efficiencies. Booz Allen can help you employ approaches like advanced threat hunting to go on the offensive against malicious activities across the enterprise. Get ahead of the threat and get ahead with your mission. Learn more at boozallen.com cdm. Welcome back to the panel discussion, Women of Washington, Cybersecurity and Government, sponsored by Booz Allen Hamilton on Federal News Radio 1500 and federalnewsradio.com. My guests today are Marty Eckert, Chief Information Security Officer for the Social Security Administration, Betsy Kulik, Deputy Program Manager for the CDM Program at the Department of Homeland Security, and Marcy Nagel, Principal at Booz Allen Hamilton. I'm your moderator, Gigi Shum. So we're going to shift topics again, Marty. We're going to talk about innovation. One of the challenges that I think everybody has, but maybe particularly in the federal government, is innovation. And one of the particular problems or particular challenges is the fact that the government, and Social Security I think is the poster child for this, has so many legacy systems. You talked about being around for 80 years and having to maintain some of those systems, legacy maintain, um, mainframe systems that have been around for maybe almost that whole time. And if you look at, maybe not 80 years, if you look at the... Um, it, yeah, I don't want anyone to think the systems are 80 Quite years. that old. If you, if you look at the statistics, though, they show that upwards of 80% of the government's IT budget goes to maintaining legacy systems. So how is it that you guys can try to innovate while more than three quarters of your budget is going towards legacy systems? You are, you're correct, Gigi, that's a challenge. I think it's a challenge for a lot of organizations. A lot of organizations that have, were early adopters of IT um, have this issue, not just in the federal government. But we are, just as many folks are, uh, moving towards an IT modernization, taking advantage of agile development methods, as well as um, cloud-based platforms. I think that from a security perspective, what we have to do is start baking security into this new agile life cycle, right? And we can do that with some of the new tools that we have in place. So they, one of the things that we need to do is more automation in the development process. So for example, we can automate our vulnerability testing to fit into the agile life cycle. Um, and so developers can automatically see what the vulnerabilities are in the code as they are writing that um, and getting ready to deployment. So it's not that at the very end, after you've spent months 
writing code that, oh, here come the security folks, and we're now going to tell you whether or not you have any vulnerabilities and whether or not you can release your code, but rather baking that into the cycle. And that will help us to innovate and release software more quickly and have security baked into that. So I think a lot of um, automation in the life cycle and for security tools specifically is going to help with that IT modernization. Absolutely. You know, they, they always say that you should bake security in, but with agile development, if you've got a, you know, an agile sprint every right. couple of weeks or month or whatever, then you're checking for vulnerabilities every time, not on this huge code set that's taken exactly. years to develop. Exactly. So. And, and also automation in terms of what CDM brings too for ongoing authorization. So you also aren't waiting to the end to do your security assessment. Um, and saying, oh, wait, I have these 300 controls to assess on you before you can release, right? But if we can get to ongoing authorization, then as we deploy, we know those controls are in place and they inherit those controls. Now, you also talked about kind of the challenge or the balance of when does it make more sense to try to secure a legacy mainframe system that didn't have security baked into it versus just, you know, modernize that system and build a new one. How do you guys make those decisions? We, well, we do, you have to do both, right? Um, so it is, uh, we do risk-based approaches, obviously, um, but if those older platforms are your high-value systems, you are going to have to put the security controls in and around those systems as well. Luckily for us, we have been at this for quite a while. So while the program's 80 years and some of our software may be a couple decades, um, the security program is also several decades old. So we have been um, building security into those processes as well. But now we have to figure out different ways to build security into newer and more innovative and faster processes. So. Bigger, better, faster, CDM, that's what it was designed to do, right, Betsy? That's what we were trying to do. Um, we worked really hard to get um, the, the tools and sensors out. The original plan was to do one phase a year. That proved not possible for a variety of reasons. Um, despite that, we managed within two years to get most of the phase one tools out. Um, the, the program was innovative in a number of, of ways, one of which was combining requirements and trying to get that enterprise approach both for agencies and across the federal government. Um, there are other <coughs> innovative things that we've been doing, um, including for Section 508 compliance. It was, of course, part of the BPA's tools had to meet the 508 um, requirements for, that are federally mandated. Um, for the most part, that means that manufacturers submit VPATs showing how, how much they've tested and what they think of, um, whether they're 508 compliant or the level of 508 compliance. But because we're a federal program procuring tools, we decided we needed to be better than that. Plus, we have a really strong 508 office at DHS. Um, and so we decided to have two of our people become trusted 508 testers so we can actually verify the VPAT submissions that manufacturers provide. And in addition to that, DHS offered the, the trusted tester training to manufacturers. So for example, the Archer platform, <coughs> which is our dashboard, they actually have got two or three of their engineers that have gone through the trusted tester training so that, like security, they can bake 508 further into the process. Um, we're particularly proud that, that we've been working on that, varying degrees of success. Not all of our tools are 508 compliant, but we're taking the Archer one really seriously, and to their credit, so is Archer. Um, the other thing that we've done is supply chain risk management. That's been an aspect of the BPA from the beginning to varying levels because the federal government isn't there yet. It's not, you're not mandated to have a pristine supply chain. They're trying to get everybody to be more sensitive to it. We started off with ensuring that um, the manufacturers and the BPA holders who are proposing submitted a supply chain risk management plan and in some cases reported on foreign ownership controlling interests so we could at least get some some intelligence from them about possible compromises. Um, for our next set of task orders for Defend and for the um, approved product list, the manufacturers have to submit um, or respond to a supply chain risk management questionnaire. We're not requiring that they have a plan, but at least we're asking whether they've got one and then there's a long list of things if you do, does it have this, this, this? It's not um, an evaluation factor that bounces you out if you don't have one, because we cannot do that within the federal regulations. But at least it's beginning to um, exert some measure of recognition on the part of the manufacturers that this is something we're taking really seriously. You know, I think supply chain is one of those interesting topics that is so um, baked into cybersecurity. 
but often I find that people just sort of take a one-dimensional approach to it. You mentioned foreign ownership, right? They'll they'll look at maybe where some software is developed, but and leave it at that without yes. taking a deeper look as to sort of how it's developed. Oh, that's absolutely true. And, and even when we did the the foreign ownership controlling interest, we recognized that was just one small piece. So we were very excited about the next step that we've taken for the the cyber products and the cyber sin that pushes it just a little bit further. Again, probably for very good reasons. There's all sorts of acquisition reasons that you can't mandate these things, at least not for a system that's not a national security system. The intelligence community has different rules and regulations, but, but we're, we're not there yet. Um, so that's why sometimes innovation is hard, because there are very well-considered structures set up to make sure that the federal government on the civilian side procures things in the right manner. So it's incremental. It doesn't happen as fast as we want it. And frankly, if we're going to succeed in cyber, we're going to have to keep working against these kinds of problems and come up with out-of-the-box solutions to them, still maintaining the federal protections that we need to do. Marcy, you've, I'm sure, had the opportunity working with many different civilian agencies to um, view where some of them have been able to be innovative and do new and different things. Do you have some examples of innovation that have particularly struck you? Yes, I do, Gigi. Um, it's interesting. I was just speaking with uh, one of the agency CDMPOCs last week, and we were talking about the advancement that particular agency was able to make by leveraging the CDM investments to automate FISMA boundary containerization. And those that have been around CNA for a while understand how difficult it is to maintain those asset to FISMA boundary associations. And through the existing leveraging and optimizing the existing investments, they've been able to automate those boundaries and now through their CDM dashboard, they can see each asset within each boundary and allowing and enabling better risk decisions and more informed risk decisions about that boundary. Now, I think um, we are on the brink of a lot of innovations with the investments that uh, DHS is making with CDM. After we've laid that foundational um, phase one groundwork, if you will, we're ready to take it to the next level and operationalize the, the tool sets. You know, with um, Forescout, for example, as a hardware asset management tool, it has the ability to enforce comply to connect. So you can't even get on the network unless you meet a certain baseline requirement. And then additionally with Splunk and the capabilities that it has and uh, coupled with the, the fully integrated solution, you can do some pretty tremendous innovations and automations just with um, the tool set that we have today. And through the future phases with um, automation and orchestration of your security processes, I know that very soon um, the agencies will have an ability to, for example, automate some of the, the incident response capabilities. And like I mentioned early, earlier, minimizing the time to detect, uh, respond, remediate, and even automate some of the, the reporting, which we all know can be cumbersome. And ultimately, one of the results is, as we are looking at a workforce, a cyber workforce shortage, if you will, automating some of these um, more cumbersome manual processes allows the workforce to be redirected to those activities that are much more critical and have um, make a bigger impact on the, the security organization. So I see innovation. We are laying the groundwork now and we're about to take those investments to that next level uh, through some of the automation uh, capabilities of security processes. So, you know, hearing you talk about that really makes me um, wonder about the amount of information sharing because, you know, you have great things that are going on at Social Security, great things that you're working on at other agencies, being able to automate different parts. How much of this information gets shared among the government and then gov with government and private sector. Can I just, just sure. add that um, just last week, we were able to, through CDM, host a webinar um, that seven uh, agencies participated in, and we shared the automation of the FISMA boundary containers across all of the agencies so that they can see the real use and value and start realizing the art of the CDM possible, if you will, with these t capabilities, because it's not about just dropping 
these tools and leaving. We've got to really show them the usability of it or else it, it's another tool in their toolbox that uh, collects dust. So I'm really excited about showing that usability across and hosting these webinars through DHS is one way that we can show the real usability of um, the investments. We've done a number of things for the CDM program to foster that kind of communication, starting off with the fact that agencies, as I keep saying, were lumped into groups. So automatically, Mercy's mm -hmm. groups Bravo and Delta already share a common solution and there were co common governance discussions going on. Um, we also have the customer advisory form that we started a couple months ago that, that um, representatives from each agency come and we listen to them. The point of the CAF is not to tell them anything, it's for us to hear what their concerns are and to try to set up other working groups to kind of cross-share that information. But again, CDM is allowing people to speak with the same terminology and have a, a little bit better of a common operational picture. I don't know what Marty might want to add no, to that. No, I was going to say I think DHS has done a great job. Um, as they've matured their program, they've also matured the communications and the sharing between the different groups and the agencies. That's true. So ladies, we have about a minute left, and I just want to give each of you a chance to just say if there was um, one thing. I, I'll start and say that I feel much better about the state of cybersecurity in our government and, and in particular our, our civilian agencies with all the good work that's being done with CDM and uh, throughout the agencies. Um, but I'll give each of you a chance to just say a couple of words about if there was sort of one thing that you would want people to know, maybe maybe people includes Congress or maybe people <laughs> includes the White House, um, about, uh, about cyber and, and the good fight that you guys are fighting every day. What would that be? Marty, I'll start with you. I think it's difficult for people to understand that, um, especially when you hear about the breaches, how much work goes into every cybersecurity program and just the breadth and expanse of security programs. And there will always be a threat actor. Um, it only takes it one person to click on one email that could result eventually in um, a very bad event somewhere. So there is a, I, I would like to say there is a lot of good work. I think that's what I would like to get across. There's a lot of good work, despite what you hear about the breaches, et cetera. There is a lot of work, and there is a lot to every cybersecurity program. I don't think folks understand that either. We talked about the multiple disciplines mm -hmm. that are in place across cybersecurity. And it is difficult as a layperson if you just hear about that breach and say, oh, why, why did they protect that, to understand all of the complexity that goes into a successful cybersecurity program. I guess what I would like to close with is the fact that I've been impressed by the depth of talent that we have come across, the pockets of excellence that are there, and, and where the pockets are a little less deep, the, the very strong commitment to improve them. I mean, we've, we've, we've met with a great deal of support for the program, and I think as Marcy pointed out, now that we've got the tools out there on the dashboard, I think the next year is going to be really, I hope, as exciting for them as it has been for us as we try to bring the operational people together with the security people to automate so people can work smarter and not harder. And that will solve a number of problems. And Marcy, we'll end with you. Um, gosh, I really think that if we all just lean in uh, on cybersecurity initiatives and realize the value um, that it can bring as a mission enabler um, to help prevent some of the, the breaches, to help pre uh, prevent any uh, service disruption capability uh, disruptions. I feel if we all lean in into cybersecurity, uh, the impact that it can have um, is tremendous. And I'm very excited about what the next two, five, six years hold with the, the direction that the civilian agencies are taking with their cybersecurity programs. I'd like to thank today's guests. Marty Eckert, Chief Information Security Officer for the Social Security Administration. Betsy Kulik, Department Program Manager for the CDM Program at the Department of Homeland Security. And Marcy Nagel, Principal at Booz Allen Hamilton. I'm your moderator, Gigi Shum, and you're listening to Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. For more on this discussion, visit federalnewsradio.com and search Women of Washington. Thank you for listening to the Women of Washington In-Depth, Cybersecurity and Government, sponsored by Booz Allen on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. The entire discussion can be found on demand at federalnewsradio.com. Search Women of Washington.